0: I'm Leah Carey, and this is Good Girls Talk About Sex. This is a place to share conversations with all sorts of women about their experience of sexuality. Before we get started, I want to tell you this. These are unfiltered conversations between adult women talking about sex. If anything about the previous sentence offends you, turn back now. And if you're looking for a trigger warning, you're not going to get it from me. I believe that you are stronger than the trauma you have experienced. I have faith in your ability to deal with the things that upset you. Sound good? Let's start the show. In today's episode, we'll meet Jenna, a 34-year-old cisgendered woman who describes herself as white, lesbian, monogamous, and engaged to her girlfriend of two years. Jenna knew from an early age that she was attracted to women, and jokes that her rebellion was actually experimenting with boys when she was in her early 20s. The sex life she shares with her fiance today is helping Jenna to sort through and release some of the sexual trauma she experienced earlier in her life. Our conversation went on for well over an hour, and there's so much we couldn't include in this episode. You're going to want to hear the whole thing, including a conversation about hormones and the phenomenon of lesbian bed death. So now is the time to head to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to access all of the full uncut interviews featured on this show. I'm so pleased to introduce Jenna. I'm so excited to talk to you. Thank you for being with me today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited too. So the first question that I ask everyone I speak with is what is your first memory of sexual desire? Um, So people
1: don't tend to believe me when I say this story. However, um, my mom used to do like a Jenny Craig type style of dieting. So we It was a Saturday and we went to one of her meetings and she was meeting with her personal counselor. And I was probably about, I want to say like six or seven and her counselor bent over and was saying something to me. I have no idea what she was saying. Pretty typical, I think in this situation, but she was wearing a low cut shirt and I could see her breasts hanging down. And I just remember looking at them and being like, oh my gosh, what is that? I want them and not in the way that like a little girl wants boobs to have for herself like I was automatically attracted to them. So, I was pretty young when I had that first experience and to this day I still say that I'm definitely boobs over ass. So, I'm pretty much always reference that story as my reasoning for <laughs> being more gravitated to the upper region than the bottom all side. <laughs>
0: I love that story. That's amazing. And I think it speaks so clearly to, you know, people will say, oh, well, how do you know that you're gay when you're that young? Well, how do kids know that they're straight when they're that young? You just know what you like looking at and what's interesting.
1: Yes, I'm very visual. So when even my fiance now, so if she's getting changed or anything like that, and I'll just stare and she's like, it's okay. Like, what do you want to do? And I'm like, I just want to look at you. So it's part of me, like always feels like that's like my initial story. And that has really started dictating some of the ways that I feel like sexual pleasure, or um, when I start getting aroused, it's usually more of a visual beginning than it is anything else.
0: Oh, interesting. So uh, let's just um, launch right into a conversation about sexuality. Have you always known that you were primarily or exclusively attracted to women? Or did it take you time to sort of navigate the social aspect of the the cultural aspect of that?
1: I thought boys were cute. uh, But then when it would come time to kiss them, I would be fine kissing And then I would want nothing to do with them. After that, Mm -hmm. I would get this pit in my stomach. I would feel like really uncomfortable being around them in a sexual way. But um, whenever I was around women, I had this like pull to them. So even before it was a sexual desire, it was more of this attraction from an internal perspective. And the first person I slept with was a woman. So I like to say that I actually experimented with men when I was like 21, 22. I did (laughs) not. I had already been with a few women by then. So for me, it wasn't this situation of, you know, I have to like test it out with women. It was, you know, very natural for me to have that experience with a woman first. Similar, I would imagine to a straight woman wanting to have that experience with a man I didn't even question it. I was nervous, I as excited. I had butterflies, but it wasn't the same when I would even come close to doing any of that with a man. so twenty one twenty two uh, had a few bad relationship experiences, and I thought, you know what? if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it now. So let's just pick somebody and go with it. And you know, we had fun. It wasn't something that I dreaded or I didn't enjoy for the most part. Um, but once it was over, it was clearly over and I haven't looked back.
0: Huh. interesting. So did you grow up in a family and in um, a town or a school where you felt able to explore with women out loud? Or did you feel like you had to hide all of that?
1: I definitely did not grow up in a family that was supportive of that. At first, we have since turned a, a huge corner, I would say, over the last probably like eight or nine years. But um, the I went to a Catholic school growing up, and the I lived very close to the public school, and I had a bunch of friends that went to the public school as well. And for some reason, you know, when I was fifteen, growing on sixteen, being gay became the new thing to try out. My neighbor is the one that I ended up experiencing all of this first with my first kiss. um, My first sexual experience were all with her. And nobody in the public school really cared. And I told my friends and I was nervous, but they were all very supportive. I would say about a year later, that relationship had ended and I started one with somebody else who went to the same school that I did. And I received some, I would say, hate from that um one time i was walking up to the front of the classroom as a junior in high school and that's nerve-wracking in and of itself everybody's sitting and you're called up and you have to go sure. give this like speech or i think i had to read like a poem from um paper i had to do something and as i was walking up um one of the boys was like dyke and i just mm-hmm. like whipped around and this is kind of the side of me that really doesn't give a fuck and i was just like what did you just say cuz i was so surprised i couldn't believe that that happened to me, but outside of that, um, you know, there was hiding, of course, because you're still trying to figure it out on your own. So it's tough to like be in a situation where you don't know how it's going to be received. You're trying to figure it out, and then all of a sudden, you're supposed to just talk about it. So it wasn't something I came right out and said to a bunch of people, but I told close friends, and you know, everybody was really open to it and just wanted to know more and ask questions.
0: Mm. So um, people listening to this will not be seeing a photograph of you. So I think we need to clarify that you are a fairly feminine presenting person. Is that yes. appropriate to say? Okay. Yes, that's definitely appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, did you get a lot of that dyke response because you are feminine presenting, or were there other slurs that were used?
1: It's funny that I think that's the only time I've really been called a dyke. Mm-hmm. Um, there may have been one or two other times, but they don't stick out in my head. So, I think that you know when you talk about body image and what you present to the world and how that impacts your privilege. I think that I did receive a sense of privilege in the sense that I didn't actually like present as gay. So most Mm -hmm. people that meet me, they don't assume I'm gay. They, I would imagine assume I'm straight. And now I pretty quickly present myself as a lesbian. So Brittany and I talk about this all the time. Um, It's like we're coming out in every new interaction we have with somebody. We're saying like my fiance, and then we say their name. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's it's kind of an experience each time not knowing how it's going to be received. So it's not it's not an outright assumption for me, maybe a little bit for Brittany, but not as I've never presented myself as anything other than feminine. So I don't I don't know what it would be like for somebody who is a little bit more on the butch end.
0: You mentioned that you grew up in a Catholic family. Can you talk a little bit more about how your how sexuality in general was approached in your family and then how in particular your sexuality was approached? I feel like
1: my sexuality in general was approached like, from what I've experienced, most people's sexuality is approached at. It's assumed from the time you're born that you are going to be with the opposite sex or that you're going to identify as the gender that you were born with. So it wasn't a topic of conversation. I do remember saying to my mom one time in a fight. Actually, I think I said this multiple times. I don't know why I came out with this. I think it was my like subconscious way of saying that I'm gay. But I used to say, I'll fix you. I'm going to be gay. And I'm going to date a black person. And Ah. my... Her girlfriend was black. so (laughs) I don't know. I don't know if it was premonition. I don't know if it was a feeling. I don't know if it was subconscious, but that all kind of um, ended up coming to fruition. So in the beginning, my mom thought that I was just doing something to like, get back at her. I say, like to say, I was pushed out of the closet. My dad saw me kissing my girlfriend at the time and we didn't know about it and it was at a family friend's house so Ooh. we left shortly after that and my dad drove home and he was really quiet and then as soon as my first girlfriend got out of the car he was like looks like we got a couple of girlfriends on our hands and i just Ooh. remember like my whole soul like sinking into the back seat and my mom was like oh really and my dad was like my dad and i are very close so i was pretty surprised at his initial reaction to it and my mom, I knew she would be so angry. And what I find interesting about the way that I grew up is we weren't really like practicing devout Catholics. You know, I didn't go to church on Sundays. My parents went through like stages where they would go more and then they wouldn't go at all for months and months at a time. So it wasn't like religion was this huge prominent figure in our household but it did become a little bit more of a crutch when it came to my sexuality and not understanding it. So, you know, that whole thing happened in the car, we get home and my mom's just like really mad at me. And my dad's down in the basement watching TV and I'm crying upstairs in my room and I go downstairs to talk to him. And my dad's pretty transparent with me. And he was just, he just said, you know, I shouldn't have done it the way that I did. I was just so surprised I didn't Really like have control basically over what he was saying and how he was saying it, and then um, he says to me. And at the time, I was like feeling a little like understanding of his position, but now I'm a little annoyed when I think back to it about this <laughs> response. But he was like, you know, Jen, you prepare for a lot of things. You prepare for teenage pregnancy. You prepare for you know drug or alcohol addiction, but you don't ever really prepare for this. So I understood where he was coming from and how he said that. I would say the analogies he used to compare my being gay to something like I need like the psychological help because Mm. I have a drug or an alcohol addiction or, you know, I'm now pregnant with this like life altering huge moment that I, I'm never going to be able to, you know, not have in my life anymore. It was a very weak comparison. Being gay is not the same as having a drug addiction. Um, I think there's a lot of stigmas attached to to addiction anyway. So the fact that it was, and you know, there's addiction that runs in my family. So it was a very interesting moment to share with him. But I do understand his point in it that as a parent, he has just never prepared himself for the possibility that his daughter could be gay. And my dad is famous for saying that he is the definition of status quo. He is a liberal. He does believe in progressive stances but when it comes to like his own life, he doesn't know how to handle that. So hmm. I, I was his challenge. I like to say I was I was his gift at accepting things that are different than the status quo. Him and I are, are still very close and he loves Britney. So it's it's not something that is a is a factor in our lives any longer. But it was definitely a rough go of it for about a year after that.
0: How has the sexual aspect of your relationship grown over the time that you've been together?
1: So I would say our sexual relationship has grown or evolved. I would say even to more than any other relationship I've ever been in. I had a realization not too long ago, um, shortly after we got engaged, actually, that, you know, I've experienced my own sexual trauma. So I was really working on that for a long time. And then I took an authentic body confidence course with Jesse Neeland, And it really helped me get back in touch with my own feelings, not even just sexual, but everything like skin touching. I didn't know how much I was turning off those reactions physically because of the trauma that I had been through until I really started touching back into it. And I would say that, you know, our sex life for the last at least few months has really come to like this whole new place, because I've been feeling more safe, even though I knew I was always safe with her. I was finally like my body was able to relax into that safety. And it's reacting the in a whole different way than it ever has. I'm like, able to stay tuned in, in ways that I was never able to do before. And we're just really playful. We talk, we talk about it afterward. It's like typical women, right? Like we want to talk about everything. Um, (laughs) Let's debrief on the sex we had last night so that we know what worked, what didn't, and let's make sure that we do all of the stuff we liked again. (laughs) <laughs> uh, it kind of is like that but you know of course in a, a much more intimate way so yeah we we do talk about a lot of stuff in general in and outside of the bedroom and that communication has carried over and we both have removed I would say some armor so we're both very vulnerable and, and you know if something works that's great we talk about it if it doesn't that's fine we talk about it too and we switch it up the next time and it's kind of fun. I, I feel like I'm learning about sex all over again and in a much more conscious way than you do when you're 16. You know, you just kind of jump in with the feelings and you just go with them and you don't really think about it. And that's fun. Um, but as an adult, when you start developing some baggage, I think that it can feel a little bit different when you're starting to get back in touch to that side of you.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. You said that you felt safe with her, but it sounds like the transition you went through was that you began to feel safe inside yourself. And those are two really important, but completely distinct things. I agree. And I think that's a really good call
1: out. Because when you're in a situation, I will never forget something that I heard at one point. Um, You know, consent is not truly consent, unless you can say no. So, Mm -hmm. and I love that saying, because that just hit me very hard in the sense that you know you can say yes, but if you can't ever take that yes back, then is it truly consent? And Brittany and I have done a really good job at her checking in with me and making sure that I'm okay. And then also not only just saying like, are you okay? But then like not caring with the responses, it's an are you okay? And if I have to stop, then we stop. And it's never Mm -hmm. a question. It's not defensive. It's not personal. It's just a, let's make sure that you feel good. So you're completely right in the sense that she's proven to me over and over again before any of this stuff came to light that she is a safe space. But I have to also feel like I can trust myself that I'm listening to what my body needs in that moment. And then I'm acting accordingly. So if I don't trust myself to do that, then am I really consenting to anything at that point, yeah. if that makes sense?
0: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. Uh, one of the things that we talk a lot about in the sex positive space is if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I love that as a concept. And it has to be taken a step further that that's not just true in the first moment. That's true in every moment after that too. And so, and one of the things that can be really hard is saying no after you've said yes the first time. I
1: agree 100%. And I think that for me, that was where my hang up was. That in the moment, I felt like, yeah, I do. I absolutely do. I do want to have sex. And then as time would go on, I would realize that something would trigger me not realizing it was a trigger but something would end up triggering me but I would still go because I didn't know how to say no again. Mm-hmm. I already said yes, so if I already said yes, that must mean that I I've just given it in. And now it's a much different conversation with myself. <laughs> like, yeah. do you want to do it now? Yep, I do. Let's go. And then, you know, we work on different positions that can be triggering so we don't do those. We're able to navigate the space in a much different way with the understanding and the explicit conversation, communication, and expectation that we can both stop at any time. It's not something that's just understood, it's talked about fairly regularly. And I think that's important for any couple. You know, there shouldn't be this expectation that just because you're married or you have had sex a certain way or you have had sex, period, that it's always just an understood. Yes. Being able to be open and communicate that you're not feeling like you want to do this because, or I know we typically do it this way, but now I'm feeling uncomfortable. It's just so important.
0: Oh, I so agree. Are you aching to explore new vistas of your sexuality? Do you hear me talk about concepts on this show and think it makes sense, but I need help applying it to my particular situation? That's where personalized sex and intimacy coaching comes in. When you work with me, I promise to help you feel safe exploring your sexuality. Together, we'll look at your needs and desires without judgment and help you figure out how to fulfill them. There is no single answer that's right for everyone, so I'm going to help you discover what's right for you. And we'll go at your pace. That's the pace that respects your emotional needs, your boundaries, and your nervous system. Because going too fast can send you into shutdown, while going too slow can be infuriating and exhausting. The goal is to find what's right for you. I work with clients who are motivated to explore many different areas of sexuality, including things like expressing your sexual desires to current or future partners, exploring if you might be queer, challenging body image insecurity in sexual relationships, dipping your toes into BDSM, exploring consensual non-monogamy, learning to date after a long time out of the dating pool, exploring your sexuality for later in life virgins, and so much more. I want you to have a deeply fulfilling, intimate life, and together we can help you get there. For more information and to schedule your discovery call, visit leahcary.com forward slash coaching. That's leahcary.com forward slash coaching. You've mentioned trauma a few times, and I want to give you the leeway to decide how much of this you want to talk about. But one of the questions that I do ask people is, have you had non-consensual sexual experiences?
1: Yes, I have. It's scary for me to talk about it because I have just identified it. I've only shared it with a few people, and now I'm on a podcast sharing it. So. (laughs)
0: <laughs> so I, if the, it's not a hell yes it's a hell no
1: <laughs> it is a hell yeah no it is a hell yes and i I even with the hell yes of course comes some nervousness because I'm about to enter into a total uh, state of vulnerability um, but I have sure. done a lot of work in processing through my trauma um, I've hit a point where I am more comfortable sharing it and I've come to share a lot of Things you know, my battles with depression and anxiety. I've sharing them in other spaces, so I feel like this is a good time to share this. So, uh, one of the first experiences I ever had with a sexual assault was with somebody that I was dating. It wasn't. It was. It felt weird because. We were together and I would say yes, but sometimes I was just really tired and I didn't want to, or sometimes I didn't feel like reciprocating, or sometimes I didn't feel like having sex for hours at a time. But I knew based on some past moments that I had shared with this person that if I said no, that it was going to be a fight, or she was going to shut down, or it was going to just become, you know, this very awkward tension between the two of us. And I would say that that was. A lot of sexual coercion that took place. So there was consent that was given, but it was drilled and based off of this desire to not displease and also Mm -hmm. to avoid confrontation. And then there were times, um, I think it happened twice, where she was on top of me and I just didn't want it to happen. And I told her that I wanted to stop and she wouldn't. Um, And luckily, she was smaller than me. So I was able to pull her to like push her off. But you know, in those moments, it's scary because most of the time people are going to be bigger than me. I am five foot two. I'm like 130 pounds. So I'm not that big and people could very easily overtake me. And I think that that message gets lost sometimes when we're talking about it in a male and a female relationship. You know, men are typically bigger and that naturally comes with a power dynamic that is not in the woman's favor. So from a physical perspective, sometimes women are saying yes when they feel uncomfortable because they're scared that they could be physically harmed if they don't. Or if they try to stop it, it could turn into a situation where they're then forced, which feels more traumatic than if you just say yes, even though you don't feel that great about it. So I was pretty fortunate that she was smaller than me, I'll say, and I was able to end it the way that I was able to. But you know, it was really hard for me to identify that as sexual assault or sexual coercion because she was my girlfriend. So Mm -hmm can that happen in a relationship? And the answer is a 100% yes. Um, And then I was raped at one point, I was fooling around with a guy when I lived in San Diego. This was during my experimentation with men phase. Um, And I'm pretty sure this is the last man I was ever with. But you know, we were fooling around. And this is, I think, a classic example of it's never too late to say no. We were fooling around. We were making out. We were taking off our clothes. We were both naked. And I was totally fine with that. But I was very clear the whole time we were doing it that I was not having sex with him. And we were sitting there and he just inserts his penis. And I'm like, no, stop it. And he stopped. So at that point, it was it's identified as rape because... We did have penetration. I did say no many times before that. And I never identified it as rape because he stopped when I told him to stop afterwards. And it wasn't violent. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't dragged somewhere and something happened to me. I wasn't hit. I wasn't yelled at. It was very calm. And that's just not the way rape has ever been presented to me. So I just thought I was kind of lucky that it ended the way that it did. And I still feel lucky in the sense that it ended the way it did compared to how it could have because he was in the military, very strong, even though we were close to the same height. And he could have very easily overtaken me. However, I got out of that piece of it and we put our clothes on after that and it was just never talked about again. I don't even remember his name. I could barely even tell you what he looks like. Um, I can so clearly remember that moment though, that we were on the couch and I looked down and I saw him penetrate me and I just looked back up at him and I was like, no, I don't want to do that. I got the plan B pill the next day because he didn't have a condom on and I didn't know if I could get pregnant. I didn't know what could happen at that point you know, sex education isn't that strong in the Catholic schools. So I wasn't wasn't quite sure what could come of that. So I wanted to take every precaution possible.
0: I'm sorry, you went through that. And I'm really grateful that you're talking about it in the way that you are, because I think it is so common for women to think, Oh, well, I put myself in that position. So it's my fault. And it's not.
1: No. And Um, it's not shocking that a woman feels that way because we're told that and we have to figure out ways to avoid being sexually assaulted and raped. It's the messaging that we're given. Don't wear clothes that are too tight. Don't wear skirts that are too short. Don't walk alone at night. And so if it does happen, no wonder all these women are internalizing it and feeling like it's their fault. And it's something that they've done when our messaging our entire lives is that you have to look for ways to avoid this.
0: I was really interested that you said, you can't can't remember his name. You can't remember so much about it, but you can remember that moment so clearly. And it reminds me of the Christine Blasey Ford testimony that had the United States so riled up where she said, yeah, I don't know what date it happened. I don't know the exact address, but I remember them laughing. Mm -hmm. I remember the sound of what happened. I remember the physicality of what happened. And so many people were quick to jump on the bandwagon of, well, if she can't produce, uh, you know, she should be able to remember all the facts and statistics of it. And from my own experience, I can say absolutely not. I know, sort of around the time that the one particular experience happened to me where, Um, I was a young teenager, and my father had sent me out with this guy who was in his mid-20s. What the hell my father was thinking, I don't know. But um, this guy took me out into the woods with one of his friends, and nothing happened. You know, quote-unquote, nothing happened, (laughs) except that I was certain that I was going to be raped and killed, because they took me out into the woods, and every time I asked them to take me home, they laughed at me and said, Oh, no, we're just going to spend a little while longer. Oh, we're just taking the scenic route. And I felt completely out of control of my own safety. I don't remember much of anything. I don't remember what the guys looked like. I don't remember when it happened exactly. I don't remember the car we were in. But I remember the sound of their laughter. And I think that that is so common and again that we are told well if you can't remember chapter and verse about it then you don't you don't have anything to say about it
1: right which is a very interesting perspective to take considering most people wouldn't remember every detail about any situation that they've ever experienced of course. Um, or the date. We barely or the, remember um, what we
0: had for breakfast yesterday. Exactly. <laughs> like
1: our minds move into a thousand different directions and we're constantly distracted. Yet once again, the expectation is on the woman to produce this undeniable, infallible representation of her sexual assault or rape. And it's, I think another example of how, you know, the onus is on the woman to be the one to produce the, the safety that she exists in. And, you know, everybody will say, well, why didn't the woman do this? And why didn't the woman do that? Or why don't you remember? How could you not? And my response is, I'm sorry, but I'm not the one who did this and it's not on me to prove it to any of you. You know, it's, it happened and this is where I'm sitting with it. And I remember this and I remember that. And if you can remember every detail of, you know, even the most beautiful day of your life, then I challenge I challenge you to, it's it's a it's a very interesting I think moment that we're living in, and I think that we're hitting a point in our existence as a country where it's very difficult to navigate it, but it's so important that we start. So I bring on the uncomfortable conversations and the difficult wording and the you know, we don't know because we've never had to know before. So mm-hmm. the expectation is that we're just trying to figure it out. And I'm okay yeah. with that.
0: Yeah. Um, so again, I'm going to jump back to sort of the um, the basics. If you're comfortable talking about it, how did you discover masturbation?
1: <laughs> I think my cousin taught me. Uh, Really? Yeah. So it wasn't like she touched me or anything like that. I think she just told me that she figured out this really great way to feel good. And I want to say I was really young, like six or seven again. And I was just like, oh, really? And I tried it and it felt great. And I used to like sneak into the other room and do it. And I would did it in this really like odd way um i would like lay on my stomach and just like push on my clitoris and then i would you know my parents would be like what are you doing in there why are you laying so flat and i would like ah and like <laughs> run out so embarrassed and ashamed um so yeah it was a i mean i i can't even tell you how many times i would sneak into another room just to do it because i would get this like urge or desire and i would like go to the bathroom or go up to my bedroom for like 5 10 minutes and you know have it out
0: <laughs> <laughs> and, and at 6 and 7 were you having something that you would now identify as an orgasm?
1: Yes, definitely. Cool.
0: And so, how does now that you're in a committed relationship, how does masturbation play into it? So, I would say because
1: of like the realization of the sexual trauma that I've been in, um, you know, my sex drive definitely took a took a hit from all of it and, you know, the way that Brittany would say it is, you know, it's like a muscle. You got to rework it. You got to build it back up. She's like, so if you masturbate, it's going to make you want to do it more. It's going to make you want to have sex more. Um, it's going to, you know, you're going to get used to acting on those urges. So it's highly encouraged, I would say, in our relationship. And I I don't think I could be luckier that I have somebody who's like, no, 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 go masturbate because then you're going to want to have more sex with me. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs>
0: Well, so, you know, the name of this podcast is good girls talk about sex. Mm -hmm. So what did the words good girl mean to you as a child? And what do they mean to you now?
1: Uh, Good girl, I would say as a child was, you know, being polite, staying in your place, getting good grades. I played sports a lot growing up. So, you know, being good at what sport I was playing, my parents were really supportive in that sense of, you know, what do I need? to do to get to, to school, to, um, what do I need you to, to get to practice, you know, and, and showing up to all my meets and all of my games. So, you know, being a good girl was making them happy and it was not disappointing them. And I figured out ways to navigate and change my life to make sure that I did that. I would say, um, especially my mom. So, you know, it was basically I would say being a good girl felt very suffocating to me. And Mm -hmm. I had always been kind of a outspoken, no, like the difference between right and wrong from a morality perspective, all people should be treated with respect and kindness. And I was really vocal about uh, or vocal when people wouldn't behave that way, and that they were wrong in that. And then I lost a lot of that, I think, growing up and you know especially coming out that experience really shook a lot of my identity and really i would say pushed me into a pretty low place but now i would say it's it's so funny because when i think about good girl i still get that like twinge in my stomach of Like, oh, but I don't want to be a good girl. Like good girl means that you're like following what society wants you to do. But now, you know, when I think about it in terms of the different things I've learned and conversations that we've had, you know, being a good girl is just being good to yourself. And it's about listening to what's going on inside of you and then just acting upon it because that's what makes you feel good. And, you know, the more we can get in touch with what we want, in life and um, living according to that, the better we're going to feel.
0: I love that. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Friends, if you love these conversations, I would love your help to keep them going. There are three ways you can participate. Two are free. And one is for listeners who've got a few extra dollars each month. Number one, take a screenshot of this episode right now and post it to your Instagram stories. Tag me in your post and if it's public, I'll reshare and send you a personal thank you. Word of mouth is the best way to build buzz for an independent show like Good Girls Talk About Sex. And the more people listening, the healthier our collective sexual experiences will become. Number two don't want the whole world to know you're listening to a show about sex. I get it. Perhaps you heard something in this episode that reminds you of a past conversation with a friend or something you wish your partner knew. Send them a link to this episode and a quick message about why you think they should listen. And number three, if you have the resources to support the sex positive work I do, I'd be grateful for your support at Patreon. Donating the equivalent of a fancy cup of coffee each month might not make a big difference to you, but it makes a huge difference to me. There's absolutely no contract or obligation, you can cancel at any time. Plus, I donate 10% of all proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are currently being legislated out of existence. It's easy to become a patron at patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. And one more thing, there is a treasure trove of additional audio at Patreon that's free to everyone. You don't even need to have a Patreon account to access them. Just go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex to start listening. I appreciate every one of you. Whether you're a client, a patron, a social media follower, or a silent listener, I trust you to know what's right for you. Thank you for being here. Now, let's get back to the show. Before we let Jenna go, let's do the quick five five quick questions that we'd usually be too polite to ask any good girl. Approximate number of partners that you've had? Nine. I just
1: added that the other day. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even think you would ask it. Um, I just like did a quick math in my head. I was like, am I still under double digits or have I crossed over?
0: (laughs) You know, it's so funny. Um, so the connection that you and I share is Jessie Nealand. Um and I've been working with her for over a year and she's incredible and she'll be a guest uh, a little bit later in the season as well. And I remember a conversation with her early in my sexual journey where I I actually had an opportunity to have sex with someone who I had just met. And I was saying to her, if I did that, like would that be an awful thing to do? And she said, why are you thinking of it in terms of awful? Why aren't you thinking of it in terms of, would this be a fun thing to do? And I was like, oh, it's because as you know, I'm 42 and I'm still in single digits. And so like, I guess I'm kind of attached to this idea of having a low number and what is what is okay as a number. <laughs> and Jesse said to me, um, I think the best way For some people, she was, she was not advocating anything in particular, but she said, I think for some people, the best way to get over your number is to have enough sex that you don't know what your number is. (laughs) (laughs) Like That's brilliant. That's great. Yeah. I definitely had to like, I was like, am I forgetting somebody? (laughs) Do you have sex during your period?
1: I do not. um, Internal.
0: But you'll have external play during yes. that period.
1: Okay. I have no problem doing that unless it's like, I don't know, one of those really awful days. But I have found that like either masturbating or using a vibrator. I,
0: I assume that you are both of menstruating age. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that work in your relationship if you are not, if your cycles are not synced up?
1: They're not synced up, and it's really annoying if I'm being perfectly honest. but I don't know <laughs> if it would be better for us to be PMSing at the same time either. So we're com- we're getting closer. So we actually we were completely opposite. like I would get mine two weeks later, she would get hers. Um, so it was like two weeks out of the month where you know sex was limited and now we're actually a little bit more overlapped recently my period just decided to like be late for five days for no reason. Um, So we're much closer than we were before, but yeah, I would prefer to not be PMSing at the same time, but I also don't want to spend two weeks out of the month being concerned with a period. So it's not fun, but I'll take that over having sex with a man. So (laughs) (laughs) that's fair.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Do you have hair down there or are you bare?
1: I shave, but I don't wax. So I shave everything like maybe twice a week.
0: Oh, that's a lot of maintenance. Is it?
1: I've been doing it for so long. It doesn't feel that way.
0: Well, I don't shave down there at all. So it's sounds <laughs> like a ton of maintenance to me. <laughs> my, my skin can't handle it. So uh, it, it's just normal for you.
1: Yeah, it's just pretty. I've been doing it, oh, gosh, probably since I was like 16, I guess at this point.
0: And is that because you like it or because you heard a message at that point that that's how it was supposed to be?
1: I definitely started doing it because that's how it's supposed to be. I prefer now to have for like my partner to shave. So I usually do the same thing. Um, And I know that's our preference too. So we just basically handle it that way.
0: Do you prefer penetration or clit stimulation? Penetration do you prefer to be the giver or the receiver of sexual pleasure? The receiver. Awesome. So Jenna, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I have loved every second of it. <laughs> Thank you. I hope it was at least
1: informative for anybody who's interested in this side of the tracks. Um, our lesbian <laughs> agenda holding meetings take place every Sunday night. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Good to know. No, but it really, it's truly been a pleasure. And I I feel really lucky to be a part of something like this.
0: That's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you're using another podcast app, go to ratethispodcast.com forward slash good girls. And remember, there's a treasure trove of audio extras available for free at Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash good girls talk about sex. While listening to those extras is free, producing this show is not. If my work is meaningful to you, and you have a few dollars to support it each month, I will gratefully accept your patronage at Patreon. I donate 10% of all Patreon proceeds to ARC Southeast, an organization that supports women in the Southeast United States to access reproductive services that are increasingly difficult to obtain. Find out more and become a community member at patreon.com forward slash Sex. Show notes and transcripts for this episode are at goodgirlstalk.com. Follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Good Girls Talk for more sex-positive content. If you have a question or comment about anything you've heard on the show, call and leave a message at 720-GOOD-SEX. Good Girls Talk About Sex is produced by me, Leah Carey, and edited by Gretchen Kilby. I have additional administrative support from Lara O'Connor and Maria Franco. Transcripts are produced by Jan Osiello. Before we go, I want to remind you that the things you may have heard about your sexuality aren't true. You are worthy. You are desirable. You are not broken. As your sex and intimacy coach, I will guide you in embracing the sexuality that is innately yours, no matter what it looks like. To set up your free discovery call, go to leahcary.com forward slash coaching. Until next time, here's to your better sex life.